from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. What happens during a presidential phone call? On the day of the call, the uh, Situation Room Director would normally go to the Oval Office where he would join the National Security Advisor, one of his deputies perhaps, uh, maybe the White House Chief of Staff, usually a Senior Director of the NSC who is responsible for the area of the world that that leader is from. And uh, they would prepare the President for the call. They would review talking points that the President probably got ahead of time, maybe overnight. There's a whole team of people involved in the process of capturing this phone call for administrative and historical purposes. And here's something that may shock you. No actual voice recording of the president or the head of state is made. So if you've been following the House impeachment process, you know that transcripts of this phone call are at the center of allegations the president did something he shouldn't have done. So if the call is not recorded, then where are all these transcripts we've been hearing about coming from? Lawrence Pfeiffer, former director of the White House Situation Room, joins us to break it all down. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. By now, you probably know the U.S. Congress is well into the process of trying to impeach President Donald Trump. There are many factors that have contributed to this situation, but at the center of everything is a phone call between Mr. Trump and Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. On that phone call, Trump, according to a person who's been labeled a whistleblower, engaged in a quid pro quo, a favor for a favor. In this case, Trump was allegedly asking Zelensky to investigate former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden and his son, the senior Biden, who happens to be one of Trump's political rivals. If that were true, it would be inappropriate for a sitting president to do that, according to what we've learned from members of Congress leading this impeachment inquiry. This program is not going to examine any of that. Instead, what we're going to investigate is how a presidential phone call works. How was it set up? How was the call recorded or captured for administrative purposes? How was it stored? And who's involved in those processes? Some of what we learned may surprise you. In order to figure this out, we contacted Lawrence Pfeiffer, former director of the White House Situation Room, who broke it all down for us. The White House Situation Room for many years now has been the focal point at the White House for presidential head of state phone calls. So what does that mean? So when someone decides that the president needs to talk to a foreign head of state for any of a variety of reasons, um, the national security advisor, one of his deputies or his chief of staff, his or her chief of staff will come to the director of the sit room and advise that the president needs to make a call to foreign leader X. 
the Situation Room then uh, reaches out to that foreign leader's staff and um, settles on a date and time for the call. They, they test the phone lines to make sure the calls are clear. And if there's any issues, we try to resolve them on both sides so that the presidents have a, have a, have a good, clear communication. If you follow the impeachment proceedings, you probably know that numerous people were either listening to this Ukraine call or reviewed the call after it was done, read the transcript of the call, shared the transcript, or moved it from place to place inside the U.S. government. So we wanted to know what the standard practice is and who's involved in these calls. On the day of the call, the... uh Situation Room Director would normally go to the Oval Office, where he would join the National Security Advisor, one of his deputies perhaps, uh, maybe the White House Chief of Staff, usually a Senior Director of the NSC who is responsible for the area of the world that that leader is from, Uh, maybe a member or two of his or her staff would be there. And uh, they would prepare the president for the call. They would review talking points that the president probably got ahead of time, maybe overnight. They would uh, uh, kind of do a walkthrough of the call with the president to make sure he understood, you know, the goals of the call, what needed to be said, what shouldn't be said. And then uh, while that's going on, uh, the Situation Room has reached out. They're setting up the phone call. I'm on a phone at the end of a couch in the Oval Office talking to the Situation Room. And uh, as the president wraps up his prep, he'll usually give the, give me the high sign. Uh, I'll then let the Situation Room know. They will tell the foreign side to bring the foreign head of state to the call. I'll tee the president to pick up his handset on his desk. And then the phone call begins. Um, the Situation Room's role doesn't end there. They monitor the call to make sure the quality is good. But in addition, they also help to develop the initial rough transcript of the call. And that's normally done by usually two to three of the duty officers on the watch there. And uh, they'll have headphones on. Uh, Two of them are uh, rapidly typing every syllable and utterance they hear um, as best they can. Uh, The third person is using a... uh, uh, slightly different uh, practice. They have a headset on with a microphone. They're probably in a quiet room somewhere, and they are repeating into the microphone everything they hear the f- president and the foreign leader say word for word. And then that duty officer's voice goes into the computer, and a transcript of the duty officer's voice then is created uh, replicating the call. Um, no actual voice recording of the president or the head of state is made. And in fact, that duty officer's record a voice is not recorded in a in an audio sense it's just transcribed that's right what you heard was accurate presidential phone calls are not recorded nor are there word-for-word transcripts of them written accounts of presidential phone calls have been the standard practice for decades but contrary to popular belief no presidential phone call has been recorded in more than 40 years since richard nixon's days in office Franklin Roosevelt did it for a brief time in 1940, and Nixon from 1971 to 1973. They were the only U.S. presidents to record their official phone calls. Nixon not only captured conversation with other administration officials, but Nixon family members and White House staff were captured as well. It was the existence of such tapes and Nixon's refusal to comply with the congressional subpoena to turn them over that led to his impeachment and ultimate resignation. Since then, a process called Memorandum of Telephone Conversation, MEMCONS, have been used 
to document official presidential phone calls. But these written accounts, again, are not actual transcripts either. They're composite representations taken from several people who listen in on the calls. Those duty officers then uh, bring together their three transcripts and they uh, reconcile them to one. Um, odds are somebody heard something slightly different than somebody else, you know, a foreign name, a project name, a country name, and they'll, uh, they'll reconcile that. That rough transcript then is provided to the directorate of the NSC responsible for the call. They'll uh, finalize that transcript, and that could be anything from a detailed line-by-line -line transcript like we saw on the Ukrainian call. Uh, but it could also be a written prose summary of the call. It could be a very short two or three sentence wrap-up of the call. Uh, that then becomes the memorandum of the phone conversation that we saw uh, with this Ukrainian call. Uh, that is then sent to the National Security Advisor's office where his staff or her staff look at the transcript. Odds are they, they, they probably won't make any changes. Um, a distribution of that memorandum is then decided upon, and that might include uh, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, maybe the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of CIA. Um, the memo is then sent to the National Security Council's Executive Secretary. You know, we're we're a government bureaucracy. All bureaucracies usually have an executive secretary who moves paper, and uh, they would then disseminate it uh, to those individuals. In some cases, those individuals uh, outside the White House would have uh, the discretion to share the transcript with individuals within their department or agency who work the particular issues so that they are cognizant of what transpired on the call so as they, they can either move to execute what happened on the call uh, or they can uh, uh, understand reflections they may see in intelligence from intelligence sources. And that's uh, uh, that's it. The duty officers in the Situation Room, they come from a variety of walks of life, mostly the intel community. So they, they are probably on detail for a year or two from CIA, uh, DIA, the Defense Intel Agency, NSA, the National Security Agency, NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. We have military members. We have State Department employees, employees from the various elements of DHS, uh, Homeland Security Direct, uh, Department are on the are on the watch. So these are people who come from a, a variety of uh, a variety of walks of life. So after the conversation between the president and the Ukrainian president concluded, as is the case with all, the uh, transcript is then uh, memorialized and it's stored in a place to obviously keep it safe and so that uh, the business of moving it around can take place. But there were some reports that this transcript was put in a place that transcripts are not usually put, meaning a special top secret place was created for this particular transcript. Is that a standard practice? So the uh, the normal procedure for most presidential phone calls, most mo almost every presidential phone call will be will be uh, classified. Uh, at least confidential or secret, just because of the fact that it's a call between two foreign heads of state. Um, the uh, uh, the phone transcripts, the memorandum of conversation are usually stored uh, on um, the National Security Council's top secret network. Um, it's a version of JWIX, if you're if the audience is familiar with JWIX. Um, it's, uh, uh, it allows for classified material to be stored, but yet shared with appropriately cleared people. Um, it, it's the, it's the, it's the system that's normally used. Um, in the NSC, however, there is a special, more compartmented, um, network and server 
that is where materials of a very sensitive nature are stored. And so that uh, has included uh, covert action planning, um, counterterrorism operation planning, um, sensitive reconnaissance program information, uh, things that you would not want to be shared with a broader audience and that would require the highest levels of protection. Um, there were uh, some occasions when a presidential phone call transcript and memorandum would be stored in that area as well. And that would normally be if the call touched on any of those areas. So you can imagine that would generally be very rare. Um, there were some instances, at least in my time, when uh, um, very sensitive diplomatic activity may have been uh, stored in that uh, more sensitive server. Um, the ones that immediately come to mind for me were the very, very early conversations surrounding um, the negotiations that ultimately led to the nuclear accord with the Iranians. So these would have been some very private conversations the president had with the Sultan of Oman, for example, when they were tr just trying to get the Iranians to come and sit down at the table. Uh, those those materials were handled in a much more, in a more sensitive manner. This phone conversation, reading the transcript, it's not something from a content perspective that I would have expected to go into that more secure server. What about this conversation tells you it's it, it doesn't necessarily warrant going to that more sensitive server? Well, it's a it's generally a standard congratulatory call. The presidents do lots of those kinds of calls when a foreign leader is reelected or something important happens in their country. They'll call, offer congratulations. They'll talk about the strategic relationship between our two countries at a fairly broad level. Um, they'll uh, uh, if there are sticky problems that might exist, they might they may bring them up in a in a general sense. Uh, and then often say, let's get our people together and I know we can work it out, something along those lines. And and that's what this call largely appears to be. And so it was, as if you look at the transcript as it was uh, provided to the public, it was initially just classified secret, no foreign orcon, which is something that, which is a classification level that would not normally go into that more sensitive database. The intelligence community has found itself squarely in the middle of yet another situation. Uh, with the president, uh, we know from the very beginning uh, the there's been tension and there's been some, something of a rocky relationship. There's a whistleblower or two or three or four or five, how many we don't know, um, that may have been a part of the intelligence community. Certainly at least one that we know um, has come forward with a great concern, and that is what took place on this one particular phone call between the president and the leader of Ukraine. How important is the relationship between the president and the intelligence community in getting the business of the U.S. done on a day-to-day -day basis, considering all of the things that have to happen? Sure. The, um, yeah, the relationship between the president and the intelligence community is, uh, you know, when, when it's a good relationship, it's very, very good for the country. Um, the, uh, when, when the relationship suffers, uh, it can be bad for the country because then we may have a president who refuses to listen to the intel community or tends to look with great skepticism at information they may be providing him. And so that's unfortunate. Uh, in this instance, um, you know, the, the good news in this instance is that any disagreement that the president may have with the intel community um, is is not based on actual intelligence. It's, uh, it's based on the fact that uh, an intelligence community officer who presumably served in the NSC and maybe had returned to his home agency or her home agency um, was now expressing concern about activities they saw while they were at the NSC. 
Uh, what a lot of people don't realize in the broader public is uh, the NSC staff, which, you know, numbers in the low hundreds, um, is, again, made up of people that are detailed from across government. The, the NSC has really relatively few um, indigenous employees, for the lack of a better term. Um, so there are they, 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 they rely on expertise from across government to staff positions in the NSC. Those positions um, include these positions that are referred to as directors within these directorates. But these are the you know young men and women who who really understand um, what makes a particular country tick, and they're then um, they're then given responsibility for developing um, policy solutions to problems that may exist in the relationship. And, and so, um, so this individual, yes, was from the Intel community, but was inside an interagency process, got, you know, was, was shepherding an interagency process that was teeing up, um, policy recommendations to the president and the national security advisor. And I think what we saw here was an individual from the Intel community who had returned from the white house who was probably representing the views of a group of individuals from the interagency who were at a minimum frustrated and at a maximum concerned about uh, what they were seeing with regards to our Ukrainian policy, that there were stated Ukrainian policy recommendations that were clearly not being followed and were frankly being undermined by individuals who were not a part of formerly a part of the United States government, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani and some of uh, the individuals he was working with. And so I think this individual either took it upon themselves or, uh, you know, drew the short straw from a, from a, a larger group of individuals from across the interagency who, who were frustrated. Uh, the other key thing to note is um, throughout our government, we have inspectors general. You know, every agency and department has an inspector general that is the mechanism where somebody can express concern, dissent, report abuse, report uh, uh, deficiencies, et cetera. Um, the White House does not have that. There is no inspector general at the White House. And so if you work at the White House and you see the kinds of things that you would normally report to your home agency department or um, uh, agency inspector general, you don't have that person at the White House. So, um, so I think uh, we have an individual from the IC who saw the IC inspector general is perhaps his or her only avenue of, of expressing that concern. You worked in the intelligence community for 30 years and you haven't been out that long. So I'm assuming you obviously still have friends in the community. How's all of this resonating with them? You know, it would be, it would be wrong to say that morale wasn't affected. I think morale has been affected to a certain extent. Uh, I think it depends upon where you are sitting in an organization at what level. I think probably some of the higher ranking individuals who perhaps find themselves dealing with, you know, senior officials across government and particularly senior officials in the White House are probably at a higher frustration level. I think your average, uh, you know, man or woman inside the intel community at the working level, you know, they, they, they probably are doing everything they can to avoid even hearing about this stuff because they want to focus on doing their job. In fact, they may be redoubling their efforts because of all that static noise up above that they, they need to work even harder to make sure they're protecting the country, to make sure their information and intelligence is as exquisite as possible and is getting to where it needs to go. Um, uh, it's probably driven some people out of the intelligence community at the more senior levels, people that 
are eligible to retire but might have stayed two or three or four more years because they're still having fun, uh, they may have said, you know what, I'm not having as much fun anymore and I think I will retire now. And so that's unfortunate because I think the uh, the community loses uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of experience and leadership when that happens. Um, it may be uh, keeping people from applying to work in the intelligence community, because, and, and that's not a good thing because we really rely on a steady flow of bright, young, talented men and women coming out of universities, coming out of the military, coming out of uh, you know law enforcement to come in and work in the intel community. And if if those individuals are looking and 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 looking at what's happening in the news and saying I don't think I want to deal with uh, deal with that, uh, you know we may be we probably are losing the benefit uh, of future development and growth. Uh, so that's unfortunate. Um, I think it also depends on which agency you're at. Uh, CIA tends to have more, uh, you know, more contact points with an administration than, than some of the other intel agencies. So if you're, you know, up the road at Fort Meade at NSA, this is probably hardly bothering you at all. If you're at CIA, maybe you're getting a little more frustrated. Uh, and then the last point I would make is just to remind everybody that the intelligence community is made up of men and women from all walks of life, all parts of the country, all different uh, political persuasions. Um, they 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 uh, they assiduously park their politics at the door when they go to work. But, you know, I guarantee you there are Trump supporters inside the intel community as well who probably feel like, uh, you know, the president's getting a bum deal here. So uh, um, so it's an interesting mix and, and, and kind of a long and complicated answer. That's Lawrence Pfeiffer, director of the Michael Hayden Center for Intelligence Policy and International Security at George Mason University. And like his answer, this story is long and complicated. It's going to be with us for a while. So we're going to come back to it for more insight as time passes. In the meantime, speaking of a long time, coming up on our next episode of Target USA. Robert Levinson disappeared on Kish Island in Iran in 2007. He wasn't in the best of health then. He has diabetes, gout, and high blood pressure. Daughter Sarah Levinson Moriarty. In addition to concerns about his health, he's the longest held American hostage in U.S. history. 4,624 days. The new $20 million reward from the State Department plus an FBI reward brings the total to $25 million. It's the largest reward of its kind. And even though the last proof of life video they got came in 2011. To this day, we still continue to receive reports from sources that he is alive still. Where is he? How is he? Who has him? And when will he be able to come home? That emotional story coming up on our next episode of Target USA. That's it for this episode. If you have any questions about our program or comments, send me an email at jgreen.com at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green. That's one word at WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com. J Green at WTOP.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want to know more about national and international security, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Attention, true crime lovers. The hit Reels Channel show 
Autopsy is coming to Podcast One with all new episodes. Join Dr. Michael Hunter and those involved in the cases as they examine the autopsy reports for some of the most famous celebrity deaths of our time, including Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley, and Natalie Wood. Download new episodes of Autopsy every week on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.